Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have two guests today. I have William Wiest. He's a GRA Distinguished Investigator and Associate Professor at Emory. And I have uh, Kevin Minbiol. He's uh, also a professor and chair, but at Villanova. And we're going to talk about creating natural cleaning products. So both of you, thank you for coming. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so uh, tell me a bit about your background and uh, how you got into natural cleaning products. I guess, Kevin, we'll start with you. Go ahead. Great. Well, Bill and I go back kind of a lot of years. We've been working together for 10 years. We both got our PhDs from the University of Pennsylvania and a group that really focuses on natural product total synthesis. So we've cared for a long time about biologically active compounds. And at this point in our careers, we do both mimicking of what nature does and some strictly synthetic compounds, but all aiming towards things with biological relevance. Okay. And William? Yeah, and my lab focuses on developing uh, new antibiotics that are potentially more specific toward different pathogenic bacteria, so the bad bacteria that make most people sick. And it was through uh, our uh, kind of a joining of timing where both Kevin and I uh, moved to Philadelphia around the same time as me to start my independent career and Kevin to move to Villanova. And we teamed up, had a meeting together and discovered some of the work that we were doing could overlap in our interests. And that's where we got into creating these new disinfectant compounds that to some extent, were inspired originally by uh, these polyamines in nature. Okay, well, what situations do you guys identify that you wanted to make cleaning products for and why? That's a good question. We, we realized maybe 10, 15 years ago that 
the world's pretty dependent on quaternary ammonium compounds. So these are compounds that you find just all over the place in things like Lysol wipes and, you know, just all sorts of other household cleaning agents. They work well, they, they're not too toxic, and they just pretty much are able to disrupt bacterial cell membrane. So not unlike how soaps work and a lot of other natural products like that. The funny thing is the active ingredients in Lysol were identified in the 1930s. So we realized that there might be some opportunity to improve on some of these chemical structures especially since nature has been faced with these compounds for a long time. Um, So since the chemical industry makes tons and tons of these compounds and they go off into wastewater, bacteria have been able to spend some time developing resistance to these compounds. So that plus a lack of innovation meant that there was this little subfield just waiting for some creativity. Okay. What what specific applications, again, are you looking at with your products? Are they for hospital use or personal use or where? Yeah, I think that's a, a good question. That was something when we started realizing that what we were making in the labs, actually primarily with undergraduates in, in Kevin's lab, that we actually had a lucrative uh, market application. So originally these were, I would say, more academic endeavors. And then we realized that we had some new compounds that were, were pretty good. And we started a, a startup company in Philadelphia named Novalice Biosolutions to commercialize these things. And one of the first questions we were asked is, what should we apply them to? Because we thought they'd be effective against lots of things. And Really, what we kind of honed in on uh, was hospital hospital situations where there's actually become resistance to these types of bacteria, uh, these or resistance to these types of compounds, these disinfectants that are not being used a lot. And what I think looking back on it is a little bit uh, kind of funny is I think we were five years ahead of our time, as now everyone's using these compounds, spraying them everywhere, likely pre-selecting for more resistance with the the pandemic that we've been going through for the past year. So now we we've reinvigorated this work with a new focus toward potentially applications toward COVID and other things. Because um, they're being used so widely. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen with this massive overuse of you know the same compounds over and over and over? You mentioned it very briefly, selecting for bacteria that are resistant. But you know, what do you think has happened already? Yeah. I mean, I I, I worked for a postdoc advisor who was I would say was a discoverer of, of vancomycin resistance, and he always told us if you're working in the antibiotic field, you never have to worry about losing your job because bacteria always become resistant. And when I got into this area working with Kevin, I was convinced that there was no way bacteria could resist something that basically blew up their, their cells. And that'd be a very difficult thing to overcome. But sure enough, if you look hard enough, you find it. And now I, I am starting to get genuinely worried that this actually might be something that we have to consider. And fortunately, a lot of our compounds right now don't have similar um, liabilities as we've seen. Uh, that doesn't mean that there's, they're going to be perfect forever. But at least we know we have a little bit more time to keep going if, if need be. Well, how are your compounds different from the quaternary ammonium compounds? And you know, like, can you, what can you say about them? the mechanism of action or how are they different? That's a great question. So the mechanism of action might be pretty similar. So structurally, and not to get too chemistry on you or your listener, we build amplophiles. So they've got a polar end and a non-polar end of a molecule, and that allows them to go to the surface of bacterial cell membrane, insert the non-polar end and disrupt that well, things like the active ingredients in Lysol, so benzalkone chloride, have a single plus charge on them. Um, what we've been doing is building compounds that have two or three plus charges, which seem to do an excellent job uh, attaching themselves to the bacterial cell membrane and lysing them open. And it doesn't seem to matter too much if it's a resistant strain, maybe a MRSA strain, or it's also really effective against biofilms, which are a, an entirely different level of complication of uh, pathogenic bacteria. 
Yeah, that's that's what I was going to ask you. Is it a win just to prevent the formation of biofilms or stop them or break them up? Or do you need to go further and actually kill the bacteria that make them up? Yeah, and this is a question that this is where my lab started out. Well, we were very interested in the biofilm activity, and it was always something that I was curious, was it biofilm specific or not? And what our research has, I think, shown is that basically our compounds are just really good at killing bacteria, and bacteria are really good at forming these protective biofilms, and they just become essentially a thousand times worse against that predisposed environment. But even, even so, our compounds are still pretty darn effective against eradicating biofilms that are established on, on these surfaces. So like the pink ring you might see in your sink or on your toilet or the yellow film that you might see in your shower. What have you discovered about them that makes them work? And again, if we're getting into any proprietary things, just let me know. But, you know, was there anything different? You said there's more positive charges. So I guess there's more, uh, I guess, more oxidizing potential of the cell membrane. And that's what, what blows it apart or like, what makes it work? Yeah, I mean, I guess from the proprietary standpoint, and I guess we should have disclosures for this, is that these are patented. These are compounds that we tried to commercialize and are still looking to commercialize going forward. The way I, the analogy I use is kind of like Velcro. So the, the commercially available compounds that are, are used widely, I would say are like, like worn out Velcro. They stick, but they don't stick really, really tightly. Our compounds with the extra positive charges stick really, really tightly to these negatively charged cell membranes of bacteria. And because they can stay there very, very stickiness and, and, and stay localized, they're less prone to this resistance development mechanism that bacteria have and also make them just more potent compounds because they have higher affinity and, and localization. Well, what a, about uh, gram negative versus gram positive bacteria? Any difference in action that you need? Our, yeah, compound, yeah. Um, our compounds have pretty uniform activity against the gram negatives or the gram positives, which is why we're pretty excited. About Typical antiseptics really diminish in their activity against either gram negative bacteria, which are tougher to kill, or resistant bacteria. Most of our best compounds are uniformly active against gram negative or positive. Oh, that's good. So yours are not really selective. They pretty much kill any bacteria in an area. Any chance of making selective ones that would go against the, the bacteria that you consider to be pathogenic? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, I think this is, it's kind of a conundrum that my group faces is we are we hallmark ourselves on focusing on these specific ones. And then here we are making these broad spectrum, kill everything type of compounds. And what I think about is it comes down to application and, and use and, and why you're using it. And a, a lot of times if you're in a hospital, it's, it's okay. Like you'd rather have a clean, sterile environment and it doesn't need to be as discriminatory because it's not you know affecting your, your microbiome or your gut or things like that. Um, in your household, maybe you'll be a little more selective. Maybe you don't need to use your disinfectants all the time. Maybe you can use soap to clean your, your countertops or, you know, save the, the hard-hitting disinfectants for the really tough cleanups so you're not, again, predisposing the environment to these compounds and, and, and pre-selecting for resistance. But I would say in the antiseptic fields, they would much rather something that, that killed everything and sterilized as opposed to something that was selectively killing pathogens. Yeah, but what happens if uh, the compound, you know, people touch it, which I'm sure they inadvertently do, with or without gloves, but I'm sure they would eat little bits of it. 
it would volatilize a little bit. They would inhale bits of it, et cetera. You know, bacteria that are, well, we'll just stick with that. But have you, when, at what point do you test um, how people are affected by it that use the cleaners or, or in the presence of them? Yeah, I mean, part of our research does focus on those aspects. I, I should note that there's a, a well-known quaternary ammonium compound called cetylpyridinium chloride that's in a lot of mouthwashes and, and already, I would say, maybe not intentionally digested, but exposed to it. And some of the studies in our lab look at the toxicity or therapeutic index of our compounds to see if we have selectivity. And we've been lucky to find some that are selective and, and slightly less toxic than the commercial compounds as well. But it is definitely a battle you face as, as human membranes or, or similar to bacterial membranes. So the mechanism would be similar for toxicity in each case. But to, to be clear, historically, these quaternary ammonium compounds are incredibly safe compounds used broadly with, with very minimal um, side effects. So I, I, I use them. I stand by them. I think they are very safe compounds to use for these types of applications. But Rich, you bring up a good point. We are really trying to optimize the ability to kill bacteria and leave human cells untouched. One of our hallmark strategies is just to build a heck of a lot of different compounds. So we're up to almost 700 different compounds that we've built up here at Villanova and we shipped to Bill's lab for him to test because we're really trying to learn as much as we can about structure activity relationships to really optimize what's the best compound at killing the pathogens and leaving eukaryotic cells. In certain applications, are you able to target a specific microbe or again, you're finding the general approach is working better? Can you modify this approach to go after targeted microbes? So I would say we can, but I would say in the class of molecules that we're talking about currently, these quaternary ammonium compounds, that's that's very difficult. Going back to kind of some of the things you mentioned earlier in terms of natural products, what my group has been focusing on recently is looking for inspiration from nature, bacteria that grow in the soil to see if they've evolved ways to make specific compounds to kill the pathogens around them. And this has kind of motivated a bunch of different angles in our lab to identify compounds that Targets say specifically Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is prevalent in cystic fibrosis patients' lungs, or or um, strep mutans, which is found in plaque and teeth that causes cavities and endocarditis. And these are certain spinoff projects that I'd say the compounds are more elaborate and more complicated, um, but have the potential to be used either prophylactically or in other ways um, going forward. In the crazy idea department, one of the ways that we've modified some of the compounds we've built is to add iron atoms attached to the structure. While we're a little bit rudimentary right now, this is kind of inspired by some Trojan horse style chemistry, uh, actually from the university that we both graduated from, Notre Dame, in attempts to get the bacteria to try to actively uptake some of these compounds, which would be a great way to, because uh, bacteria need iron to survive. This might be a sort of strategy if we can refine it to have bacteria actively take these poisonous compounds towards themselves and lice them. What about um, acting in other ways, uh, interfering with the quorum sensing that bacteria do so that they won't get to the biofilm stage or they won't turn on a certain ability? Um, you know, what else can you target instead of just blowing the membranes open? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, it's a, it's a very sophisticated question getting to the quorum sensing and, and antivirulence type compounds that target what makes you know bacteria make you sick. And these are approaches we, we thought about in our lab. I, I go back and forth on the merits of those because I don't know how you would get some stress compound through, say, FDA approval because you're not killing the bacteria. So the, the thresholds for what would qualify as an active drug or something that's effective would be a little bit harder to quantify and, and be able to get through these clinical trials. Um, but there's definitely many research groups out there um, in academia and industry looking at these creative approaches that might be less prone to resistance. Well, how do you guys get your ideas? Do you observe 
bacteria in action in certain environments? You know, have you looked at, this is one thing I'm curious about. Has anyone been able to swab or look at areas that have been cleaned, you know, 8 million times and see what kind of bacteria are now there before, during, and after cleaning and look at a reference material, let's say wood, you know, like a wood door or something and treat one with chemicals, you know, every day, all day, leave the other one alone or just use, you know, older chemicals like soap or things like that and see what kind of bacteria develop on both. And then you might have a better strategy on, on who's there when you need to clean it after it's been cleaned a million times. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely people investigating, looking at, you know, selecting for resistant microbes and, and, and things like that. I would say from going back to your first question about where do we come up with our ideas, at least for me, I, I like playing detective. I like looking back into older publications, looking at environments where there's pre-selection for compounds that might kill bacteria. So again, going back to my analogy earlier, looking at the soil around plants, there's lots of lots of microbes in the plant soil that are trying to kill each other and compete for the viability in the areas. So looking back at the bacteria that grow in those areas, you might find compounds discovered in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s that were overlooked. Maybe they weren't effective at being anti-cancer compounds that they were searched for or other reasons and weren't looked at as antibiotics. And these kind of looking at the structures and looking at where they were found can kind of give you hints that you might be finding the next great thing. For antiseptics, it's tricky, right? It's, it's really hard to find a compound that you can produce for incredibly cheap prices and commercialize in large ma- amounts of, of material that is both safe and broadly used, broadly applicable. So it's, it's a tricky battle of that, that balance of activity and cost and safety. Um, but it's something that, you know, motivates our work uh, going forward. But what's, what's observed in nature? Do bacteria typically, you know, when they make antimicrobial peptides, do they always seem to target the exterior membrane to lyse it? Or do they have other methods of action that you could, you know, make compounds to mimic? Yeah, so antimicrobial peptides are a great example. It was, I think, the motivation to one of our first papers in these class of molecules is kind of trying to form simpler versions of that. And what's amazing about those, those molecules, these AMPs, is that they are incredibly selective and not, not very toxic to human cells, which is really amazing and remarkable. And I think many companies have been developed around that idea or using them for polymer coatings or, or other work. And, and what other compounds are out there? I mean, there's, there's lots of other uh, main targeting molecules. Some target the ribosome, which helps uh, bacteria make proteins, target other types of, of mechanisms of viability in life. And there's it's really remarkable how many unique targets there are out there. And, and we keep finding new ones in our lab through the research that we're doing. And really the goal is to try and find those targets that are only present in pathogenic bacteria. So then you really would have something that's very specific. And again, it's, it's keep, keep looking and, and getting motivated about what nature is, has been doing for millions and millions of years. It's incredible how ubiquitous these antimicrobial peptides are. I mean, to my understanding, virtually every organism that's not single-celled makes antimicrobial peptides in an attempt just to keep out the bad guys, which again are just amplifiles trying to, generally speaking, lyse bacteria that are coming by. So the method of action usually is lysing the, the uh, you know, their competitors, lysing their cell membranes, but not, not other methods of action. So I, for the antimicrobial peptides, that's correct. But for there are other compounds that these bacteria can produce that target different things. Okay. What, what would like what's commonly seen, let's say, again, I have a surface, a table in a restaurant, and it gets cleaned, you know, after every meal, et cetera. What would you expect to see there? Like, what are the bacteria eating versus bacteria that would be on us or in us? You know, what would be like a, a common food stop, food for them that would cause them to, you know, to go there and hang out there? What are they eating? I'd say one of the common common things that if you're growing bacteria like we do in our lab 
is, is basically the carbon source. So whether it's sugars that are left over, you know, residual syrup that might be on the table or other kinds of, of carbon sources that the bacteria can then break down, digest and use for their energy production. Uh, typically it's, it's, you know, they need different types of ions, salts and sugars to keep their process going. But I should note a lot of bacteria actually are really, really good at surviving in really harsh conditions. So whether it's, if there's starvation of materials, they will form these biofilms or some bacteria will form spores to protect themselves from others. And they're, they're really phenomenally adaptive at surviving in really harsh, um, unique conditions and areas. Oh, so a lot of times they could be on a surface where they're getting no nutrients, but they're in a spore or a biofilm form waiting for some contact from some organism and off they go. Now they have access to salts and sugars and all kinds of good stuff. Exactly. And that's where quorum sensing comes into play, where they can maybe come back and say, hey, guys, we have more food. Let's 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 grow more. Let's, let's reproduce and expand and maybe, you know, venture out for new places to live. I, I don't know how crazy this is, but has anyone made a, a dry soap or could you actually, I don't know, compress soap and make a, a doorknob out of it so that every time someone, you know, grabs the doorknob, maybe a, a tiny bit of the oils in their hand goes into the soap and activates it and kills stuff on the surface? It's not crazy to look at surface disinfection. You can attach antimicrobial compounds to surfaces, and that can, I think, happen with quaternary ammonium compounds or a variety of other things. Okay, I just thought it was a different idea. Um, so what have you found in nature that really, I don't know, maybe you haven't been able to mimic it yet, but just really amazes you? I mean, one thing you mentioned is there's antimicrobial peptides made by all kinds of creatures everywhere. But, you know, in your exploration, what other, uh, I don't know, what other really interesting or fascinating things have you found? So there's one story in my lab that we've been working on for the past five years or so, where we did we were interested in this small molecule made by a bacteria called Pseudomonas, and it's a relative. Well, it was a relative species to Pseudomonas aeruginosa, uh, the one that I mentioned earlier about cystic fibrosis and, and other um, wound injuries. And what we found that was interesting was this: this one bacteria makes a compound that specifically only killed the bad guy, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, and really nothing else. So we were really intrigued by this. No one's ever made it. No one understood how it worked and if it was a legitimate finding. So our group made it. We made some compounds that looked similar and simpler, and we figured out how it worked. And what was really, I thought, remarkably surprising is that it targeted an enzyme in primary metabolism. So an enzyme that every bacteria, even humans, had. But it was so specific in, in either how it's getting into the bacteria or on the what enzyme, how the enzyme looks in bacteria compared to others that it really only targeted that one species. And this is something that we're hopeful that we can promote, uh, move further and, and look in using it into a, maybe a new antibiotic in the future. Are there any bacteria that you could culture and put it to a spray and they would act as the, uh, the disinfectant because they would, you know, phagocytose other bacteria or, or just attack them when they're near? That's another great question. A long time ago, when I worked at James Madison University, I started teaming up with some ecologists, salamander, salamander ecologists, who were looking at the bacteria on salamander skin and how they could fight off fungal. And um, so I ended up looking at a lot of the chemicals there, which was kind of a fun story. Some of that technology has since moved on to a startup company that looks to use probiotic bacteria. So bacteria, bacteria you purposefully apply to human skin to fight off human fungal, fungal infection. So the application of good bacteria doesn't have to just be in yogurt that's going through your digestive system. It can be actively applied to your skin to, to keep the right symbiotic balance of microorganisms on your skin. Are there any fungal or mushroom-based cleaners? Because fungi seem to have a really interesting defenses of bacteria and vice versa. I'm sure there probably are none that come to mind specifically, but I, I agree with you. There's definitely compounds that are produced by fungi that 
have been investigated for antibacterial activity. I know there's also some really interesting uh, research in bacteriophages. So they've really small phages that basically target bacteria specifically and, and kill them as well. And I think down in, uh, outside of Atlanta, there's an institute looking specifically at bacteriophages as a, a new approach for antibacterial treatment. Yeah, I guess there's tons of angles you can go, you know, look at uh, in an ecosystem, what's interacting right now. You know, what's, is your bacteria that you're trying to target in a certain ecosystem? Who's killing it in that ecosystem or fighting against it and co-opting their abilities to be used in other applications is the name of the game, it sounds like. You're describing the field of chemical ecology. I mean, it's just chemical warfare from these little microorganisms that can't run away from each other or attack each other. It's, it's all chemical warfare at a molecular level. So what other projects are you guys working on uh, that you're hoping to you know, bring to the market in the near future? Well, I'm still working with that skin probiotic company called Dermbion. We're trying to see what are the best symbiotic bacteria that you can apply to humans. How do they fight off different fungal diseases and what chemicals are in the situation? And we're kind of playing again the game of being Sherlock Holmes, digging through literature and trying to find the next newest, greatest uh, molecules that could be specific in their in their approach and, and maybe be used again for certain um, angles that having a very narrow spectrum type of compound would be beneficial. All right. And what do you guys expect to be able to produce in the next you know couple of years? What's like real near term that you're very close to having a breakthrough on? Well, I think that we've developed hundreds of promising new antiseptics. And it's just going to be a question of which one is going to be the best way to balance efficacy versus safety. You know, to circle back to a question you had said before, if we're making tons and tons of these antiseptics that are going out into nature, you know, how can we do better? Well, the answer is have more effective compounds that don't really get slowed down by resistant bacteria. And maybe we can use them in much, much 10x smaller amounts to still get the job done and clean that hospital room. So in the short couple year term, yeah, that's what we're working on between the, the two of us. Yeah. What about a cocktail of, you know, known chemicals that'll work? But if, let's say you have five of them, you need to, you know, hopefully one fifth the amount of each. Would something like that work better? Yeah. I mean, that's something that I've been really thinking deeply about. I, I kind of look to HIV therapies as motivation. The HIV cocktails have been incredibly, incredibly uh, lucrative and, and effective um, for really almost eradicating the disease in some ways. And I think there's a lot of things that can be learned there in terms of combining different agents with different mechanisms of action to make it very hard for bacteria to over, uh, overcome that uh, resistance profile that could possibly develop with one compound being used. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work, both of you? Where can they go? So for me, uh, I have a website uh, at Emory that it could be you search my name, you'd be able to find. I'm also pretty active on social media on Twitter at WM Weast, W-U-E-S-T. Um, and uh, we typically post our, our latest and greatest there as well. And for me, head to the Villanova Chemistry website. And uh, if you can pronounce or even spell my last name, I'm pretty easy on a Google search. Yeah, your name looks biological. Minbiol, it seems like a, like a structure <laughs> of a bacteria. Or something. Yeah, we try to minimize. The, no, I have no idea. Well, very good. Well, both of you, thank you for coming. And uh, you're both working on super interesting things from different perspectives. And uh, I think it's great. So thank you. Hey, thanks so much for letting us talk a little bit with you. Thanks for having us. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? 
Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.